Well, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Well, it's pretty good. Happy Father's Day to you this morning. As, uh, as he said, I'm uh, Brad Gray. I'm coming over from uh, West Palm Beach this morning. I attend uh, Brother Blaylock's church up in uh, Jupiter, Beacon Baptist. And he recommended I come in here and fill in for you this morning. And uh, I have my wife, Natalie. That's my wife. We've been married four years. And then that's my uh, father-in-law and mother-in-law, Doug and Pat. And we're so glad to be here this morning. It's been a blessing, and I'm just thankful for the opportunity to preach. Uh, a little bit about me. I'm from originally from South Carolina. My dad's a pastor up in Greenville, South Carolina. He's been there for about almost 30 years now, actually. Wow, it's been a long time. Uh, almost 30 years now. And so um, I grew up in church pretty much all the time. I didn't get saved, though, till I was 16. And I went to college, and, and ever since then, I've just had a real passion for uh, preaching and writing and, and just all things theology, I guess you could say. Um, but it's a joy to be here with you this morning. Uh, you can turn your Bibles to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This morning, I want to talk to you about our better and our happy father. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read one verse, and then we'll get into what I want to talk about this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and let's, let's, look at, uh, let's look at verse 11. Paul, he's sort of in the middle of a sentence here, but he says this, which is an interesting phrase that I want to extrapolate on. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. You know, there's an old preacher, his name is A.W. Tozer, and he's famous for saying that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. So really, your thoughts about God, which is, you could say, your theology, is the most important thing about your character. It will drive how you do the things you do and why you do the things that you do. And actually, we can say even this, that everyone has thoughts about God. Even people that don't believe in the existence of God are making a thought about God, albeit a wrong one and a false one. But they are in themselves a theologian in that moment. A false theologian and a wrong one, but they have a thought about God. And these thoughts, then, about God are absolutely crucial. It's crucial that we have the right thoughts about God. I would say that it's a life or death matter. The, th the question that I want to pose to you this morning is this. Is God happy with us? Is God happy with us? When you think about God, how do you imagine Him thinking about you? How do you think of, what do you think His character is, is like when you mess up? Or what, what do you think His character is like when you succeed? Because if there's a big difference between those two things, then you might have a wrong thought about God. I would say this, that look around you at all the various conceptions of, of God in pop culture and in film and in all these different arts. He's always portrayed as a mean old man with gray hair. <laughs> you see God the Father in cartoons and, and movies and stuff. He's this grumpy old man who has a long white beard and he's just, he's just not very happy. He's just not a happy man. You know, uh, one of the most famous uh, depictions of this is a, a Star Trek film. Star Trek uh, film number five. Actually, the crew 
is searching for God. And when they find him, though, he's not God at all. He's just this weird figure, and he's going after retribution and, and, and vengeance. And he kills people quite uh, violently. And the, and the captain, uh, of course, of, in this Star Trek movie, Captain Kirk, he says this, this famous quote. He says, maybe he, that is God, is not out there. Maybe he's right here in the human heart. The implication being that there's no God, that we are our own gods and all these other sorts of humanistic overtones and such. That's what most people think God is. He's this angry person who's just out to get you. That he has some sort of beef with you. But the truth is, God is not a crotchety old man that is just crusty and angry about the things not going his way. He's, he's, he's not, uh, or you can say it this way, that the fall, Genesis chapter 3, wasn't some big hiccup in God's sovereignty. That moment wasn't a blip in the radar for God that's saying, oh man, what was that? Even through that tragedy, God is found and he is found faithful. That even in the midst of that very scene, in the midst of that heartache, God is found as sovereign. Because even there in Genesis 3, we have a promise of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. So God, he is not angry. And actually, one of the great reformers, Martin Luther, said this, that to know God aright is to recognize that with him there is nothing but kindness and mercy. Those who feel that God is angry and unmerciful do not know him aright. See, there's a common misconception. First of all, I want to talk to you about that. A common misconception is that God is grumpy. Just like in that film, Star Trek V, there's so much animosity and hatred towards God. People think that he's out to get them and, and that he's just waiting to pounce on you. Sort of like a crouching tiger. He's just waiting to get you because you've messed up. Because you've gone this certain way in your life. But there's a couple misconceptions I want to dispel for you this morning. Now, it's Father's Day, and this is going to be kind of anticlimactic for me to say. But first of all, God is not like your dad. That's actually good news. That's actually good news. Now, I, my dad might listen to this one day, so I have to say this to my dad who might be listening. That I love my dad, and I honor my dad, and I cherish my dad. And I, I, I look up to him, and he is one of my, my greatest mentors in life. But it's safe to say that my dad would make a really crummy God. He would make a really terrible God if I, if I exalted him to that level. You see, there are diff, definite similarities between our fathers and the, our heavenly fathers and the way that they interact and everything like that. But... Our fathers, our earthly fathers, are just merely broken and, and, and infallible, or excuse me, fallible representations of our heavenly father. You see, we've seen the worst at times in our earthly fathers. We've seen their, their selfishness, their impatience at times, their, their temper, their depression, their discouragement. All of which is very unlike our heavenly father whose love for us isn't flawed and it's, it's not unpredictable, but it's constant and it's faithful. As it says in Psalm 118, verse 1, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, because His mercy endureth forever. Mercy there, it can be translated as steadfast love or goodness or kindness. And that's... 
the dramatically different type of love that God has for us. It's not unpredictable. It's steadfast. It's perpetual. It has no end to it. There's no wavering with it. God, you could say this, that He doesn't change His mind about you. He doesn't change His mind from one day to the next. He doesn't get frustrated. I like to say this. God doesn't get frustrated with His investment. God bought you with the blood of His Son. He invested in your life. And He's not frustrated when you mess up. We'll get to that later. He's not frustrated with His investment. He knew what He was buying. He knew that He was buying sinners. Sinners that will continue to sin. And He's not surprised by your faults. And He's not caught off guard by your failures. One writer who I love, his name is Octavius Winslow. He says it like this. We may doubt and debase and deny our divine relationship with God, and yet God will never disown us as His children, nor disinherit us as His heirs. We may cease to act as a child. He will never cease to love as a father. Thank God for that. So God is not like your dad, but also God is not a dictator. God is not a dictator. He's not some old, gray-haired man sitting in heaven just wanting to rob you of joy and function, you know, sort of as this divine buzzkill. I think one of the things that has plagued Christianity is that we have done such a disservice to people that people think that Christianity is all about rule-keeping. Now, rules are good, but most of the time these people think that these rules are, are keeping you away from something. When actually, these rules and these ordinances, these commands that God has for us, they're leading us into something. They're leading us into what Jesus calls abundant life in John chapter 10. God's law is not something that's hemming you in and, 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 and just keeping you away from something. It's leading you into joy. That's what God's law does. It leads you into everlasting joy. As the psalmist says in Psalm 1611, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. See, God's word, God's law, all these commands and these ordinances, a lot of times people see them, they're keeping me away from imparting and enjoying life and all these sorts of freedoms, but they are leading you in to a more everlasting freedom and more fulfilling joy and even greater, you could say, party. <laughs> it's a heavenly party. So God is not a dictator. He's not keeping you in and, 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 and trying to rob you of something. He's leading you into something. He's not a dictator. He's not like your dad. And also, I think one of the most intriguing ones, God is not Santa. I have to say that because a lot of the times, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, has become sort of this God-like uh, pop cultural icon and we attribute his attributes sometimes to the one true God. You know, if you believe that the God of the Bible is all about rewarding the good people and judging the bad people, you don't believe in God. You believe in Santa Claus. That's what Santa Claus is all about. One writer says it this way, that Jesus is not, thank goodness, Santa Claus. He will come to the world's sins with no list to check and no tests to grade, no debts to collect, and no scores to settle, but he will wipe away the handwriting that was against us and nail it to his cross. Jesus is not 
Santa Claus. God is not keeping some heavenly naughty or nice list from which to dispense grace to the good ones and judgment on to the naughty ones. God doesn't judge us on the merit or the measure of our performance in life. That's good news. Because if he did measure us on our performance, that would be bad news. You see, the economy of God isn't that if you do certain things, you can get God to come through for you. A lot of times we might think that, that if I just do these certain checklists, then God has to reward me. He has to bring me my wish list. But your fate isn't decided by that. Even if it's not admitted outright, many believers, many Christians, I, I believe and I fear, function in a world where they are their own rescuers. Where, meaning that depending on what they do and how faithful they are, they believe that God will come through for them. That if God didn't come through for you in that one certain situation, then you obviously didn't pray hard enough. Or you obviously didn't read your Bible enough. And so in order to get God to come through for me, I've got to pray harder, and I've got to read more, and I've got to do all these sets of lists and checklists and things that I have to do, and then God will come through for me. That's not God. That's Santa. And better not mess up, or you're stuck with nothing but coal. Or actually you could say, better not mess up, or you're stuck with nothing but condemnation. You see, if you believe that your eternal fate is dependent upon your performance, you don't believe in God, you believe in Santa. Or actually, more accurately, you believe in karma. See, karma is this, this, this thing that's so pervasive that but even if it's not admitted, we actually somewhat believe or live by it. And I believe that karmic Christianity, so to say, is one of the most devastating forms of Christianity. Because it goes against the entire gospel that we have in the word of God. Christians far too easily get into this trap. I like to call it, it's not original with me, so don't think I'm amazing, but it's called this good day versus bad day trap. Now, a writer who just recently passed away, actually, this year, Dr. Jerry Bridges, he wrote this great book called The Discipline of Grace. And in this book, he goes on to talk about this very thing. He call, I think he calls it the good day, bad day vortex. And what happens is, let me explain it to you. So say one morning you wake up and you have your alarm set for 6 a.m. in the morning. And you wake up even before your alarm and you are just on fire. You, just, you had such good sleep. Your kids didn't wake you up in the middle of the night. You wake up and you, you get your coffee. You pour your, your Keurig coffee. It's awesome. It's, it's amazing. You make your breakfast. You have a great, healthy, well-balanced breakfast of eggs and bacon and toast with strawberry jam. And all this, just everything. Your breakfast is awesome. You get out to work, and you just, because you woke up early, now you get to leave early. So you're driving to work, and you're making it on time. You're hitting all the green lights, and no one cuts you off. So you don't get mad at the people that cut you off. And you go to work, and you just have a good day. And in fact, in that day, it's so good, you get a promotion. And you come home, and you tell your wife that I got a promotion. And then she already has your favorite meal cooked for you. Everything is good. That's a good day. And then maybe there's also a bad day. 
Because you wake up late, you miss your alarm, you don't have time for your devotions, you don't have time for breakfast, you can't even drink coffee, so you have to go and wait in line at Starbucks and they mess up your drink, and so you have to go back into the store and you have to get another one. And then you finally get to work and you're late and your boss reprimands you because you're late to work and you have a very bad day and you go home and the kids have been crazy and so your wife is saying, I did not have time to make you dinner, and so you have to fend for yourself. And so it's now it's your second pop-tart meal of the day because you didn't have time for breakfast earlier in the day. That's a bad day, so to speak. Now, we could ask the question then, do you think God is more pleased with you on one day or the other? At the, at the face value, you might think that God is more pleased with you on the good day. Because the bad day has a lot of bad stuff in it. But the, in actuality, God is not wavered by any of those days. And if you believe that God is wavering with you on one day or the other, you believe in karma. You believe that what you give out is what you will get back. So obviously, if all these bad things are happening with me, something is bad with me. If you answered yes to the idea that one of those days God is more pleased with you, you are banking on your works and you are leaning on your performance and therefore you are nullifying the grace of the gospel, as Paul says. Romans eleven six, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. You see, on our bad days and on our good days, God's love for us is the same. It's the exact same. God's love, you could say, is unflinching and unconditional and unmitigating. It doesn't matter the, the, the ebbs and flows of our feelings, the ebbs and flows of our life. God's love is ever the same. And if you'll excuse me, I need to drink some water because I was blessed with a weak voice. I always read the stories of men like George Whitfield, who would preach to crowds of like 20,000 people with no microphone or anything, and everyone could hear them. And here I am with this crowd, and I can't, um, my, my voice is just really weak, I'm sorry. Excuse me. God's love is unflinching unmitigating and unfailing. One writer, again, Octavius Winslow, he says it like this. Seasons may vary and circumstances may change and feelings may fluctuate and friendships will cool and friends may die, but Christ is ever the same. Throughout the seasons of life, your seasons, whether you have a good season or maybe you're in the midst of a really bad season, God's love for you is the same. It's always the same. His loving and His gracious disposition towards us never wavers. As it says in Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even as we just sang in that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, its first verse takes its words from James chapter 1, verse 17, where the Apostle James says, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness or neither shadow of turning. He doesn't change. His character is unchanging. 
changing. God is not a God of karma. And he's not like your dad. And he's not a dictator. He's not like Santa, rewarding the good and punishing the bad. You can say it this way. God is a God of grace, giving everyone the opposite of what they deserve. The opposite of karma. You see, instead of that God is grumpy, we come to a resounding conclusion in the fact that God is happy. Look back again at 1 Timothy. It's been a while since we've been there. But 1 Timothy 1 and verse 11 again, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Blessed there literally means happy. It's the same word that occurs in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus is talking about the Beatitudes and he's saying, blessed are they. And blessed, that means happy. Happy are they who are persecuted. Happy are they who are weak and so on. This word happy also occurs 49 other times in your New Testament. It actually occurs in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 15. That verse says, or excuse me, uh, 15... Which in his, in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, that is, sovereign, the king of kings and lord of hosts. The blessed sovereign, the blessed God, this glorious gospel of the happy God. This phrasing, I think, is very important considering the times that which, in which it was said. First Timothy comes at a time when Paul has, has left Timothy at Ephesus. And, and, and Timothy, this very young man, has been charged with leading this church. This, this important church, this important work that Paul didn't really want to leave, but he was forced out of. And he's beginning this work, and all around him are people who are leaving the faith. They are apostates. They are, they are going away from the true. And as Paul over and over again says in, these, in this letter and in 2 Timothy, he calls the sound doctrine of the gospel, you could say. They're leaving that. As he says in 2 Timothy, I believe, he says they're making shipwreck of it. And it's, it's interesting. He actually names people by name who are leaving the faith. Verse 20, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, of whom I delivered unto Satan, that they may not learn, to, may learn not to blaspheme. Just like those two guys, he names people who are leaving the faith. This is a troubling time for Timothy. So, therefore, the question is, how could God be happy in a time like that? <laughs> we can ask that question now. <laughs> How can God be happy in a time like this where people will go and they will shoot other people, 50 other people, just because? Or where people in this world believe that they can redefine the laws and the bounds of marriage. Or they can redefine everything that we have known. How can God be happy when so much of this world is turning away from Him? And it's saying that you don't exist and I don't care about you and your laws and your rules and what you would have for us. We are going our own way. How can God be happy? But I'll tell you, He is. Because just as I said that seasons don't vary and, and change God's love, this season is not changing God's love for you and God's love for this world. It's still the same. You see, first of all, God is glad in himself. That's an odd thing to say, but it's true that God doesn't need you to be happy. He doesn't need, his happiness is not dependent on your obedience. God was happy before I existed, and he will be happy after I pass away. 
He's happy in Himself. The Trinity of God, of the God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, form a perfect union of happiness in which they are happy in and of themselves. John 17, this is what is called uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer as He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And He says this, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them which shall believe on Me through their word, that they may all be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, and that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved me, as thou hast loved them." God was and is perfectly satisfied and sustained in himself. He's glad in himself. It comes from his divine and his triune nature in that fact that the, the, the glory of the Son reflects the perfection of God, which is also ministered to us by the glory of the Spirit. He wasn't lonely before creation. And God is not wringing His hands and holding His breath, waiting for you to obey so that He can be happy again. And there's infinite glory and beauty in that. That God is the happy God. He's the blessed God, full of joy that we, that we can't even imagine. First Peter says that. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 and verse 8, Whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, ye yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Another way you could say that is inexpressible joy. That's what God is full of. He is the happy God. And by His gospel, by His Son dying, He seeks to impart His happiness. That's the end game. The end game of the gospel is Him imparting His gladness and His happiness to us that we may share in that gladness for all of eternity. That's what heaven is. That's what glory is. So God is glorified and glad in Himself, but He's also glorified in His Son. God's happy with you because His law has been satisfied. Not by you, but by His Son. All of the work of His Son glorifies the Father. John chapter 13 verse 31 says this, Therefore when He was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God be glorified in Him, God shall also glorify Him in Himself, and shall straightway glorify Him. God is glorified in His Son. Because of what he did on the cross. And because of that gospel, we are now allowed and have the ability to enter into the joy, you could say, of the happy God. We have that ability. The cross of Christ welcomes all who believe into the everlasting happiness of heaven. That's what the cross does. That scene of violence, that scene of utter defeat is actually a victory for God. And that he now has sons and daughters who are now allowed to share in his happiness. As it says in Matthew 25, verse 23. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. And then this last phrase, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Literally, that could be 
translated as enter my gladness or share in my happiness. That's what God is after. I want you to share in my joy. So by grace through faith in the death of the Son, we are made partakers of the Heavenly Father's gladness. That's what Jesus was here to tell you, to tell you about and to share. That God died so that His joy might be ours. John fifteen eleven. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. You know, Christians, sadly, can oftentimes be some of the most unhappy people. <laughs> and I'm, I'm telling you that from experience, actually. Uh, when I was in high school, I worked at Panera Bread for a really long time. And I was, what goes along with that is that sometimes I had to work on Sundays. I had to work the Sunday shift. And I would work through what they would call the lunch rush, which is literally a rush of people seeking for lunch. <laughs> and... It was interesting because you could tell, well, in where I was working in Greenville, there is literally a church on every corner. The Greenville is, as some people have called, the buckle of the Bible belt, so to speak. And there is a lot of churches and there's a lot of people who would claim that they are Christians. And a lot of them came to Panera on Sundays for lunch. (laughs) And you could tell, you could recognize them. They were in their Sunday best, so to speak. And they would come in and it was interesting because... They were some of the most unhappy people at times. It was often, and they were notorious for being the most just entitled and disgruntled and unhappy people to serve and to, and to you know, give food or whatever. They were just unhappy. Nothing was fast enough. Nothing was right. And everything was not in their timing and to their liking. And it was, it was always interesting because I was known as a Christian at this Panera. And it was always disheartening to me that they had just ruined their testimony in the five minutes that it took to give them their broccoli cheese soup or whatever. And I think, you know, a lot of this unhappiness, I think, and I believe, stems from a sort of a fear and a confusion surrounding the end times. Surrounding what's going to happen when we're taken to heaven. Because maybe you've heard this before, I don't know, but a lot of people believe that when you get to heaven, when God takes you up in his rapture, that he is going to bring you to this giant room, maybe, maybe like this. There's going to be this giant room, there's going to be this giant big screen TV behind us, and what's going to happen is you're going to walk up, and he is going to put in this little jump drive and into this computer, and it's going to play your whole life in front of all Christians to see And then God's going to judge you on that. God's going to judge you based on your life. And it's going to recap your whole life. And you're going to be judged on it. Based on what you did and what you didn't do. And all these sorts of things. That would be really scary for me. I don't want anyone to see those parts of my life. I don't want anyone to see all those scenes. But the fact is, that's not what's going to happen. When God raptures you, when you get to heaven, I imagine it's sort of like this. You're just going to walk up to this little, this little desk, this little desk that Jesus is sitting at, and he's going to say, what's your name? State your name. Brad Gray. And he's going to turn around, he's going to open this file, this filing cabinet, and he's going to pull out this file. And all it's going to say is going to have a stamp that says forgiven. 
It says pardoned, or it says approved, or it says paid in full, or it says no condemnation. Because you guess what? Our record is now wiped away, and it will be dripping in the blood of Christ. If you believe your file, so to speak, is dripping with Christ's blood, sealing your standing so that God is forever happy with you. That's what's going to happen. He's not going to read off the things you did or didn't do. He's going to say, you are approved because you are in my son. You see, God can't be anything other than happy with you if you believe in Christ because you are in Christ. As it says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who believe. If you are in Christ, God can do nothing but love you. Because all your sins, as it says in Colossians, are hidden in Christ. All of God's wrath was poured out and borne by his son. As it says, one writer, he he makes up this word, they're thrown into the forgettery of Jesus' death. Let me read you that quote. It's so good. Jesus takes all the badness down into the forgettery of his death and offers to the Father only what is held in the memory of his resurrection. God is happy with you because Jesus bore it all and he took it all and he erased it all, securing fully and finally and forever your forgiveness. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says this, For in him, that is Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in a baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened. Together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. That's what Jesus did. And that's why God is happy, because Jesus nailed to the cross your sin. He nailed it there forever, wiping it away. And God is happy, not because of what you do, but because of what His Son did. What His Son accomplished. A writer says it like this, that our sins are forgiven, and they are forgotten, and they are cleansed, and they are pardoned, and they are atoned for, and they are remitted, and they are covered. They have been cast into the depths of the sea, blotted out as a thick cloud, removed as far as the east is from the west, and remembered against us no more. They are cast behind God's back. That's what Jesus did for you. And that's why God is happy with you. Because if you believe in Jesus' saving grace, that's what you are given. A gift of forgiving grace that forgets your sin. But you might be asking, how does this affect our daily lives? Sure, this is, this, this is our heavenly standing we're talking about, that God forgives us. But what about my earthly and my daily struggles? Is God still happy when I fall? Glad you asked. Because God is, is glad in himself and glorified in his son, but he's also grieved in our sin. 
And this is very important because this word grieve, you might have been thinking of this verse, Ephesians 4 verse 30, where Paul says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. What does that word grieve mean? Literally there, it's meaning to make sorrowful or to affect with sadness. And I love these definitions that the word grieve means to cause grief. It means to vex his soul and the grieving of the spirit here is a direct effect of our sin. It's important to note this, that God is saddened that we would believe that anything other than himself can satisfy. That's what he's grieved by. He's grieved that we would turn to anything other than himself and his word and believe this will ultimately satisfy my soul. You see, that's what sin is. Sin is a disbelief in God and his sufficiency. The essence of all sin is what the reformers would call this. Incurvatus in se. It's Latin for man turned in on himself. It's man curved in, turned in, saying, I can make a better God than God. I can do things better than God can. That's what really was Adam and Eve's fault. If you think about it, Genesis 3, what are they tempted with? They're tempted with the idea of becoming like God. Man turned in on himself, and thus the root problem of sin isn't our behavior, that's the fruit. The root of our problem is our belief. It's believing that anything other than God is satisfying, is sufficient, that will meet my needs forever. The root of the problem is our belief. And this is why God says in, Jesus, in John chapter 6 that this is the work of God, that ye believe on him who he hath sent. That's why the cry of that, of, that, of that other guy, I forget which verse it is, where he says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Saying, I believe, but I know that there's unbelief in me. Help me in my unbelief. Because you see this, a God... He's serious about sin. That much is certain. If you don't think that God is serious about sin, just look at the cross. That's a very clear depiction that God is absolutely serious about sin and he hates it. We're told in Habakkuk 1 verse 13 that God can't even look at sin. And also in Psalm 5 verse 5 that he hates all workers of iniquity. You see, God hates sin with the sort of loving hatred a father would have for anything that would harm his family. Just as anything would come against them to cause them harm, to destroy them, that would be a danger for them, that father hates that thing. And he will do anything to protect his family, yes, even sacrificing his own son. That's his loving hatred of sin. But how does that God jive with God's love? How does God's grief and God's love, how do they go together? You see, we know from Scripture that God's love for us doesn't rise or it doesn't fall on the measure of our obedience. We discussed that. That would have been karma. That would be bad news. The good news is that God's love for you is eternally secure in what Jesus did. We talked about that. So this is where we see the full beauty of this word grieve. You know, and taking a cue from Charles Spurgeon, he says that the Spirit's grief in Ephesians 4.30 is is a sweet combination of anger and love. The anger has been, has been, has been, is still there, but it's been sweetened by the love of the Son. 
And the edge and the bitterness is taken off the wrath because of His grace. So you see, God hates sin, but now because you believe, you are in His love. It's still there. God is still angry with sin, but He is not angry with you if you believe that He has cleansed you of that sin. You see, because of the Son's perfect performance on the cross for you, the people of God now only, only feel the Father's grave and His grief, never His wrath. All the wrath of God had for you was borne by Jesus. And as we talked about earlier, He endured the brunt of God's undeserved justice so that you and I could enjoy the beauty of His undeserved grace. That's the gospel. That this is our motivation then. That God loves us no matter what is our motivation for service. We are not coerced into doing Christian things by an angry God or a dictatorial God. Our motivation for service isn't the fear of punishment or the promise of reward by some Santa God. Our drive as disciples and believers is solely the fact of the gospel. The truth that God's love is most clearly seen on the cross of Christ. With His Son bearing our sins, bearing your sins and my sins, and taking it all away. Taking it away forever. You see, the imperatives and the directives of Scripture are always based on the finished work of Christ. In His sin-free life, in His sin-bearing <clears throat> death. That's what everything that we are told to do is based off of. Is based off of faith. You see, what God's after is not some sort of blind obedience. Sometimes I think we might think that God wants these sort of religious robots, so to speak, that are just doing religious things because they've been told to do religious things. No. God is after, I would call them worshipful warriors, people who desire to do what is their duty because they've been powered and empowered by grace. Christians that want to do what they ought to do, and that is only accomplished by a continual in a constant remembrance and reflection of God's love. It's not by going to the law of God that we get more motivation to do what God has called us to do. That would end up making us want to quit. Because the God's law is unflinching. It's, uh, it's demanding. It's, it is unrelenting. And it says, if you are not perfect, then you are failing. So the motivation for our service is not the law, but it's the fact that God will love us, yes, on our good days, and yes, on our bad days. It's the fact that God will love us no matter what. William Cooper, the great hymnist, he said this in one of his hymns, that to see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes the slave into a child and duty into a choice. That's what the gospel does. And that's what God's favor is of you who are in Christ. Christ. It is unflinching and unalterable. And this is the glorious gospel of the happy God. And I'll end with a quote from Jerry Bridges, the late Jerry Bridges, who says in that same book, The Discipline of Grace, he says that your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. That's the state of the Christian heart. Realizing that we are never so far away that God can't save us. And yet we are never so independent that we don't need God to save us. 
is this perfect and beautiful balance of grace. And you could say, then we could answer the question, is God happy? Yes. Yes, he is. He's happy. And he's leading us into his happiness by his glorious gospel of grace. Let's pray.